This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote and celebrate the homebrewing hobby and community. Join today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, AHA member discounts on beer, food, and brewing supplies, access to exclusive events and competitions, and a bunch of other cool stuff that'll take too long to list here. Head over to homebrewersassociation.org or experimentalbrew.com and get yourself a membership. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Hey there, beer fans. Welcome to another episode of Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we interview 25 of the world's best brewers and bring you their tips, tricks, and secrets. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and figuring out how to check it out. So today's episode, like every one of our episodes, is a busy episode. We're going to actually start off with a couple of announcements. We're going to head into the pub, cover a couple of uh, fun stories and well, and not so fun stories that have happened uh, in the past two weeks. Uh, we'll head into the library and we'll give a quick little talk about some of the latest stuff we've read. Stop by the brewery to talk some ingredient knowledge that's going on. And we're going to go back into the lab, and this time in the lab, what we're actually going to do is we have an announcement about the Igor program, and we're also going to revisit our last episode's discussion about Brutan, because between then and now, we've gotten some additional results that might just change the complexion of the previous reporting that we had. And we're going to go off to the lounge and talk to one of my favorite people in the world, Mr. Bob Sylvester of St. Somewhere Brewing Company in Tarpon Springs, Florida. Uh, I think you're really going to want to stick around and listen to, well, just the wacky way that Bob brews. <laughs> wacky should be right up your alley man All right and then of course from there we're going to go and we're going to tackle some well something other than beer some of your questions and then we're going to get the heck out of here maybe we'll get this done in two hours we'll see but in the meanwhile we hope you're enjoying your commute wow i'm exhausted already man just thinking about it Hey, we want to tell you how you can help support the podcast. If you go to our website, experimentalbrew.com, you'll see a whole bunch of links down the right-hand side of the screen. One of them is for Amazon, and if you're going to order anything from Amazon, uh, we'd appreciate it if you would uh, click that link and do it through there. It won't cost you a cent, and Amazon will toss a little bit of money back to the podcast to help support what we're doing. 
You can also click on the link for Brew Your Own Magazine to subscribe to BYO, or you can click on the link for the American Homebrewers Association and get a subscription to Zymergy. And when you do either one of those, once again, a little bit of that money kicks back to us to help the podcast. And the last thing you can do is click on the Patreon link there and donate to our charity of choice. We uh, change charities every six months, so we got a couple months left here for our current one, which is the San Gabriel Valley Humane Society. So click on that Patreon link and donate whatever amount you feel like, uh, a buck, uh, ten bucks, a hundred bucks, whatever you feel like, and it will go to those guys to help out with their mission, which is dogs. Yeah, come on. You know you want to help support the pups. Okay, before we get down to the meat of the episode, we do have a couple of announcements to make. Uh, if you haven't been paying attention, last week we released episode 8 of The Brew Files, which is uh, talking with Peter Simons about Australian historical brewing practices. I had a great time talking with Peter, and I think uh, you'll learn a lot of information from there. Uh, so go give that a listen. And I promise, no no ukulele in this episode. Uh, I've got to admit that when that episode started... My first reaction was, you know, I don't know if I'm really interested in this. And by about uh, three minutes in, I was just fascinated by the wealth of information he has. So, uh, yeah, even if you don't think you're interested in the subject, go listen to it anyway and learn something because it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's kind of a little bit of an Indiana Jones story. Well, except for more moldy books. (laughs) All right. And then, of course, Denny, you have something coming up. Yeah, speaking of things that you probably think you're not interested in, um, I uh, did an interview with my friend Jeremy Jalibert for his uh, video podcast called Grist and Mash. Uh, you can find it at gristandmash.com. There are two parts there, and we talk a lot about brewing, and we talk a lot about my past. And when you get to be my age, you have a lot of past to talk about. So anyway, uh Go check it out, gristandmash.com. There are some other really good interviews there besides uh, the one that I did, if you want to listen to something with a little uh, integrity to it. Pour yourself a beer, sit down, watch a few of these episodes. It's pretty cool. And the last thing is coming up real soon, uh, at the beginning of May, I think May 6th and 7th, you can catch me at uh, the California Homebrewers Festival, and I'll be actually hanging out with Marshall from Brewlosophy. We're both giving talks there, and uh, we'll probably both be wandering around doing some recording for our respective podcasts. So expect to hear me over there and expect to hear him over here. Yeah, you know what? And I'm trying not to be hurt that they didn't ask me. <laughs> Next year, buddy. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. but if, you, if you've never been to the Southern California Homebrewers Festival, you really should give it a try if you're in the area because it's more than 400 homebrews on tap, about 1,500 people, all camping for the weekend and having a good time. And one final announcement. We want to remind you about HomebrewCon in Minneapolis. Coming up June 15th through 17th, HomebrewCon is the event formerly known as the National Homebrew Conference. We will be there along with Malcolm and Marshall from Brewlosophy. We'll all be doing a seminar together called Hold My Beer and Watch Me Science. Drew and I will also be recording a podcast live from the Brewcraft booth on uh, Friday afternoon from 2.30 to 4.30. So if you're there, come by, see us, ask us a question, try and stump us, make us look like bigger fools than we actually are. Oh, boy. And if you if you want to hear like what uh, HomebrewCon episodes sound like, you can go back and you can listen to last year's episode. Uh, you'll see that we're having a good time while we're doing it. So totally stop by and, uh, and say hi. Yeah, one of the few times that we're actually drinking while we record, and uh, things can get pretty amusing. 
So anyway, join the AHA. Come to Homebrew Con this June. It'll be, if you've never been before, you're going to have an amazing experience. Uh, this will be my 11th or 12th one, and it still just blows me away every time. It is so much fun. Oh, yeah. And, you know, for me, it's also, you know, it's not just the chance to have the beers or go listen to the talks. And, boy, is there a lot of talks. Or go, you know, explore the floor and see different things that people are selling or explore the town and see all the new breweries in a place I'm, I'm not usually at. But it's also a chance for me to get to meet and see other brewers uh, for, you know, sometimes the first time or sometimes people I've seen for 13 years. Uh, it's definitely uh, amazing, you know, because you can see so much creativity happening and so many people having fun. And it literally is a safe space for three days for homebrewers to completely nerd <laughs> out about our hobby without having anybody look at you and go, you know, I think you take this maybe a little too seriously, buddy. <laughs> That's right. So for more information or to uh, register to go, go to homebrewcon.org. That is homebrewcon.org. And we hope that we'll see you in Minneapolis June 15th through 17th. Okay, well, it's just about time. So we're going to head over to the pub, grab a beer, talk about the beer life, and we'll be right back. Interested in making wine or mead? Don't settle for lesser yeast. Instead, use Vintner's Harvest. Just ask Tyler Barber from Adventures in Homebrewing, who says, Vintner's Harvest yeast is all I have used for the past four years. I have done several small test batches with Vintner's Harvest, and I really like the MA33 for meads and fruit wines. Vintner's Harvest seems to tailor their yeast strains to the styles of meads and wines the home Vintner is most likely to make. Find Vintner's Harvest yeast wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. sitting here in the experimental brewing pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town usa we are having a couple beers and uh, today i am drinking one of my favorite beers in the world and i got it from uh, my friend jeremy as a thank you for doing that interview we talked about a couple minutes ago and it is an orville and it is a wonderful beautiful beer it had been way too long since i've had one this is a relatively fresh one. It was bottled last July. So, uh, you know, th the Brett is still not too funky at this point, just, just enough. And the hoppiness comes through, the barrel comes through. Wow, what brilliant beer. I'm going to have to go buy more. Yeah, and I, I love that brewery. Uh, I got to tour it in 2001. And yeah. that was before they made the change, actually. They used to dose the Brett into secondary along with the dry hops. And mm -hmm. nowadays, they actually dose the bottles. So the bottles actually stay in that sort of fresher or vol state longer than they than they used to because the Brett used to right. have additional time. But it has always been one of my favorite beers. I think the first time I ever had it was a revelation. And so, yeah, getting to have that again and again is it's a it's a good lesson, particularly if you particularly if you want to understand what Brett can really do over time, the beer is super consistent and can be super remarkable. And sometimes you get blown, but that's kind of a thing that happens with Brett. Yeah. It, this just reminded me it had been way too long since I'd had one of these. 
All right, and on my side of the fence, I have something to shock everybody. I'm drinking yes, water. Yes. You're drinking water? Yeah, I'm drinking water. Uh, reason for it is my wife is currently studying uh, for her uh, finals in counseling, and she's taking a class in addictions. And in solidarity with her, I've actually given up having uh, beer outside of special situations, like my birthday. <laughs> Which fortunately happens to be tomorrow. So, well, yeah. So, hey, it's not that much of a sacrifice; just uh, an occasional one. Okay, everybody, sit there and uh, sing "Happy Birthday" to Drew quietly. Yeah, there you go. Well, no, hey, here, here you go. If you want to give me a belated birthday gift, I'll tell you exactly what you can do. You can go onto iTunes. You can click our podcast. You can leave us a review. You can go onto Amazon. You can leave us a review on our books. There you go. Happy birthday to me. Or you can go to our website and buy a book. Uh, we have a store there and uh, buy a book. Give Drew a birthday present. Yay. All right. So I guess we should actually get down to actual beer talk here. Okay. Okay. So uh, I guess uh, we should uh, definitely congratulate the new members of the AHA governing committee who uh, will be serving along with, huh? If you don't know, there were six slots opened up on the AHA governing committee. The AHA governing committee is the group that advises the AHA staff. And we, you know, every year there's a new panel of people who have to get elected and kicked off. And so this year there were six slots open and there were 14 members who ran for those six slots, which is great to see that sort of reaction. Uh, Two of the incumbents returned, the two ones who were running. That was uh, Martin Broomgard and Jeff Rankert. So Martin, as you may know, is the one who does all the brewing water stuff. But we we were joined by four new faces, one of which is uh, Phil Farrell. Uh, who you may know uh, from Georgia as the Chicken Man, for That's all of right. his photos of running around with beer people and having their photos taken with a rubber chicken. I just want to know, because nobody's actually been able to tell me, if Phil gets a vote, does the chicken also get a vote? I, I think that kind of goes without saying, don't you? Yeah. And then uh, Dennis Mitchell from Chandler, Arizona, has uh, also been elected. Uh your friend, uh, Jill. Jill Marilli from uh, the Portland, Oregon area, who uh, is the woman behind the Pacific Northwest Homebrew Conference that uh, goes so well every year. Yeah, and then the governing committee is now international. Uh, oh. Because one of the last uh, the last person to take office was Kathy Ann Lee, who is actually from London, Ontario in Canada. Wow, and that's very- that is so cool, isn't it? Yeah, we're, we're no longer... Well, I guess we're still the American Homebrewers Association. It's just now North America. <laughs> yeah. They may need to change the name to account for everything, huh? Yeah. Well, but hey, so congratulations to all those people who joined. They're already actually starting to take up jobs on the governing committee, doing some various things. But it'd be fun to see some new faces, some new blood, and get some new ideas into that whole thing. And don't forget, since Denny and I are both your representatives, I'm actually the vice chairman of the HA governing committee, which is weird. But... If you have chairman of vice, I, I figured that. Yeah, would be I, I, I wish. Uh, but if you have suggestions of things that you'd love to see the HA uh, do, go and look at the HA governing committee. Those people are the ones who can communicate that to the HA staff for you. So that also means that you can talk to Dane and I about that sort of stuff. That's right. Yeah. And also, you know, uh, these elections will be coming up again next year and we will need more great new members. So if uh, you feel that you have something that you want to contribute to the uh, world of homebrewing, be sure to keep an eye out for when uh, the nominations come up next year. Run for the governing committee and get on board and help everybody out. Wee. Wee. All right. So time for our favorite topic on this podcast, it seems. You mean beer and sexism? I do. All right. So, uh, <laughs> one of which we support, the other one we don't. <laughs> exactly. So 
Denny, you want to walk people through what happened? Yeah. Um, the Brewers Association has decided that uh, when they do their yearly awards at the Craft Brewers Conference, that if you have a beer name that they deem to be sexist or offensive, they'll give you your award and they'll talk about the name of your brewery and all that kind of stuff, but they won't mention the name of the beer because they don't want to publicize something that they feel is offensive. Um, while Drew and I support that, uh, as you can imagine, there's been a whole lot of, uh, of, of controversy out there over the decision. Uh, people are viewing it as censorship, uh, you know, it it's really kind of silly, and I have to admit that from my point of view, I feel that the Brewers Association might have opened a can of worms by trying to, in effect, quantify something that is uh, so subjective. Uh, but I applaud their overall goal, so uh, my feeling is kind of, I'm glad I'm not the one who has to figure out how to deal with that. Yeah, well, okay, so... Here's here's what it looks like. They've said, basically, this applies to CBC, GABF, and World Beer Cup. And what they've said is basically that entry names will be reviewed by a panel uh, made up of various industry folks, so it's not just the BA. But that panel will determine uh, or make a ruling, basically, if they would think that the average adult drinker would find this name offensive. Now, what that actually means, I don't know. And I, God help us, you know, first time somebody decides to throw a fit because a seemingly inoffensive name slipped, uh, got cracked down on or a seemingly offensive name got uh, slipped through. But really all of the BA is saying is if your beer has one of those names, we will not publish the name. And probably more importantly to the, to the people who are entering these competitions, you will not be allowed to use the BA's marks. You know, the trademarks, the Brewers Association, GABF, the metal logos, World Beer Cup, any of that in any of your advertising for that particular beer. So you can yeah, you and, and you can say this is censorship and, you know, in a way it is, but it's not a First Amendment violation because that only applies to the government. But here's the problem and why I think they had to do something, because the alternative is do nothing, which is a lousy plan. But. The BA right now is looking down the barrel of a couple things, one of which is that we are now actually starting to see some contraction in the beer market, right? There's a rising percentage of women who are beer drinkers. It's now at 37% in craft beer world. And the best way for the industry to survive or keep growing is to keep growing that percentage of people. So this is a first step at sort of alighting some of the concerns or some of the friction of possibly bringing new drinkers into the audience. So that's part of it. But the other part of it is the primary function of the Brewers Association is to go stand before state legislatures and Congress and lobby, you know, bring about tax benefit changes, uh, distributorship changes, all that sort of stuff. Get the laws changed to favor craft beer, craft breweries. It's a hell of a lot easier to do that if you don't have to sit there and explain why it's okay for an industry to have, you know, I th last time I checked, I think it was over 200 beers with the, the term panty peeler in it. So yeah, right. from, from the BA's point of view, they're kind of caught in a, in a hard place. And this is arguably to me like the softest sort of response that they can take. Yeah. I mean, you know, how many, 
how many double D blonde ales do we need out there? Uh, one is too many, in my opinion. Uh, so it's like I was saying, you know, I, I really do agree with what they're trying to achieve. Uh, you guys know that from listening to Drew and me talk about this in the past. I, I just am glad that I'm not the one who has to uh, make the decisions and take the flack for them. Yeah, I mean, the aim is noble. The implementation is going to be brutal. And the, fall, mm-hmm. the fallout on either side of that is not going to be pretty. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah. It's a good thing I'm not the one making the decisions. Right. And I've heard people say, well, you know, then breweries will just stop joining the Brewers Association. I don't think that's going to happen because there are too many benefits. And, you know, all you got to do is not name your beer something stupid and offensive, people. I mean, come on. Number one, be creative. Don't take the easy way out. And number two, why do you want to limit your market by possibly offending anyone? Well, there you go. It's it's a tricky thing, but I mean, the problem is I think the industry has to do something to respond, and this is a first sort of step. And whether or not yeah. it's the right step, only time will tell. That's right. That's right. We'll see how this goes and uh, where it leads things and uh, and what happens. Uh, hopefully, we'll find people starting to name their beers uh, a little bit more creatively and uh, with less cop out, <laughs> just taking taking a name because it seems easy, you know. There you go. All right. Well, why don't we, why don't we leave that and go to something silly? And okay, fun. let's do that. And uh, Denny, have you heard of the concept of the beer mile? Uh, you know, I have I have heard of it. And that's not a concept that uh, I think I could get into personally. (laughs) All right. So if you don't know what the beer mile is, the beer mile is a new sport, if you want to call it that, where you basically are running around a track and every quarter of a mile you stop and you shot. Well, sorry, not shotgun. Every quarter of a mile you stop and chug a beer. And the beer has to be, I think, there are rules because there are always rules. But the beer has to be like 5%. You have to demonstrate that you actually you know, have fully drunk the beer by holding the can over your head, something blah, 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 blah. Well, there are people out there who are trying to set like, you know, the four-minute beer mile. They haven't gotten there yet. I think they're still somewhere around five minutes, uh, which, by the way, that is the running and the chugging all in one. <laughs> and uh, so that's kind of tough. But apparently one Notre Dame senior, uh, Emmett Farron, Decided to take it just a little bit further. About yes, twelve, yes, and about, he did about twelve miles further, and <laughs> decided twelve miles and twelve beers, huh? Yeah, so he he went for thirteen miles in a beer half marathon with thirteen beers, and uh, he wow. ended up doing it in an hour and thirty four minutes and twenty five seconds. Jeez, uh, man, I. I applaud Emmett's dedication to the sport, the endurance necessary, but wow. And technically, it wouldn't qualify under the complete rules of the beer mile because I think he was drinking uh, Coors Light, which is under 5%. But (laughs) at 13 miles and 13 beers, I am just going to give it to the man because, yeah. 
So when when you say the endurance necessary, I assume that you're meaning that he just has to hold it until he gets done with the half marathon, huh? Yeah, well, and the um, hell, let's face it, the endurance of running a half marathon. I don't know if you've taken a look recently, Slappy, but I'm not exactly running a half marathon anytime soon. Yeah, um, you know, I'm not only running, but I'm I'm thinking number one of having 13 beers sloshing around in your stomach as you run. And having to stop and look at bushes and go, can I uh, get over there and pee without having to uh, kill my time? <laughs> the logistics of the beer half marathon. Oh, man, really? I mean, it's like a whole new uh, challenge, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, next thing you know, coming to the Olympics near you soon. All right. Well, hey, I think that's enough. That's enough pubby yeah, stuff I, for now. I think that's enough for me. But yeah, I, w- I just want to know if any of our listeners would actually... Uh, try to even attempt running a beer half marathon or even a beer mile. Sure yeah, really. If, if if you've done it or if you would do it, uh, shoot us an email and let us know. Uh, we're at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Let us know just how crazy you guys really are. Yeah, I think I can smell an experiment here. Does beer brewed with RO water go down easier for a beer mile? Than beer brewed with a hard water, <laughs> or uh, does an IPA work better than uh, than a cream ale? Yeah, it is a nitro beer easier on your system during a beer mile than a carbonated beer. You know, and I think that you know the other thing you can take into account is the uh, gas generated. You know, uh, as kind of giving you a little extra boost, huh? There you go, jet propelled. <laughs> okay, okay, I'm I'm sorry I went there. Uh, I apologize to everybody. <laughs> All right, well, hey, whatever. Onward. Okay, we're going to uh, head over to the lab and uh, talk about the latest results of our Brutan B experiment, what they mean, what they don't mean, how you can take them, why you might want to try it. We'll be right back. Yeast is collaborating with homebrew icons and top-rated hobby podcasters Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham to bring you the Yeast private collection strains for 2017. Our second quarter features a great variety of strains for saisons and related styles as we shift into spring and the warmer weather ahead. With their rustic and refreshing profiles and versatile pairings, there's no better way to welcome the new season. Try something funky with our Cezanne Brett blend, go classic Belgian with beer to guard, or discover Forbidden Fruit's unique flavors in a wit beer. We've moved and we're sitting here among all this shiny stainless steel. You're doing lab noises. I know. We have to have some sort of atmosphere. Okay, fine. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Drew's doing the atmospheric noises, and we're here in the brewery, and uh, we're going to talk about some updates to our Brutan B experiment. Take it, buddy. All right, so if you listened to the last episode, you heard us talking with Joe Formanek of Anjanomoto about the Brutan experiment that we had done by the Igors. And we had a couple of pieces of feedback because, well, people like to give us feedback. So I figured I would cover some of the feedback first, and then we can go into what changed because we did have a change happen to the uh, to the experimental results. 
Denny, do you want to read uh, Jeff's uh, feedback? Yes, I do. So we got a website comment from Jeff C., and I'm just going to read you what he said, and then we'll talk about it. I'm a new listener, and I love the idea of this website and the podcast, but I have to say you guys really blew it on the Brutan B. experiment report in the podcast. Even though you readily admitted that the objective statistical data failed to show a measurable, discriminable difference in the tasting panel, you spent most of the coverage of the results giving anecdotal subjective reports, both from yourselves as well as the Igors, about the benefits of Brutan. As you know, a primary, <laughs> oh yes, we know, <laughs> a primary reason to perform blind experiments such as the triangle test is to eliminate subjective bias and perform an objective test for the treatment effect. Your statistical test failed to show a statistically significant benefit of Brutan. Now, it's quite possible that the procedures of the experiment could be tweaked to increase the sensitivity to the possible benefits of Brutan by testing it on a particular beer style that might especially benefit from the product, for instance. However, until those experiments are performed, you really ought not dismiss the objective data like you did. Again, even though I'm a new listener, I've already become a big fan and have mostly agreed with you on things, but I have to respectfully disagree with you guys on this one instance. And he signs it Jeff C. And uh, let me just say that I did reply to Jeff on the website, and basically what I said was, yes, it's hard to disagree with your criticism, Jeff. Uh, we did spend a lot of time uh, on the subjective side uh, I hope that we did uh, at least kind of get the objective side out there so that you can judge for yourself from that. But we also felt like we had noticed such demonstrable benefits ourselves. And I've done, I've done back to back batches and compared them and I've found a marked difference that we wanted to make sure that, uh, that that part of it didn't get buried by the objective side. So I'm sorry if we buried the objectivity with subjectivity, kind of reversing what we were trying to do. But, uh, you know, it it is what it is, and we will try to do better in the future. So, uh, But things have changed also since then. So, Drew, why don't you run through that? Well, yeah, and I'll just add in my own two cents. I also think part of the problem for us was I honestly think this was the first experiment where we had results come back that disagreed with what we expected to see, like in a fundamental way. So I think that was one of those moments where we had to go, hmm, well, how do we talk about this? So, and you're right. I think we fell down a little bit on how we talked about it, but that has changed. We'll do, we'll do better. We'll do better in the future, but yeah, but things have changed. Let's uh, run that down. Yeah. So after I published the results last Friday, we had one of our Igors, uh, Mike Drzanowski, I think I said that right, sorry Mike if I didn't, uh, who came back in and said, oh hey guys, I totally forgot to give you my results. This happens. So Mike actually sent in his results. He had done a Citra Wheat Ale, and uh, just to give you a reminder of with the other beers that we had in the mix, because I thought one of the good things about this experiment was that we had a lot of different beer styles, was we had an original rye lager, an American Pale Ale, a Citra Wheat Pale Ale now, an International Amber Lager, a Munich Dunkel, a Hoppy Pilsner, a Cascadian Dark Ale, or Black IPA to the rest of us, or, huh, uh, and a German Pils. 
So we had a pretty good spread, including a lot of loggers, which was kind of nice given Brutan B's supposed defects. And right. one of the comments that we'd had was, okay, well, we don't really... We wish we could see how this stuff aged because part of the idea is that Brutan B is supposed to interfere with you know, oxygen reactions that cause oxidation down the line, right? So I kind of refer to it as an oxygen scavenger. Some people disagree with that term, whatever. It basically gets in the way of the oxygen. And yeah, let me, let me just kind of hop in here real quick. Technically, it is not an oxygen scavenger. It doesn't remove oxygen from the beer. It interferes with the uh, oxidative reactions with uh, copper and other things called, they're called Fenton's reactions. Yep. So, you know, while we uh, in our write up called it an oxygen scavenger, I guess that's something else we need to be a little bit more careful of in the future. But it kind of works the same way yeah. in, in terms of the results. Right. So now, Mike actually did 15 tasters and he did them in a couple of different panels uh, over the course of two weeks and came back out of the 15 tasters, 11 tasters actually came back saying that they could successfully detect a difference. They proved that they could pick out the, the odd beer and that's a, about 73% of the tasters then. And that leads to, for that particular trial, a, a P value of 0. 0.002, which is definitely under the the threshold of significance, right? So I mean that's that's a a positive result in terms of saying there is an impact here to the Brutan B, and overall what that actually did was it pushed our total number of tasters up from fifty nine tasters with twenty four successful IDs and a p value of 0.145 in our naive aggregation method, which we still fully admit is naive and we're still looking for a better way of, do, of combining the trials with Mike's data added in. We had a total pool of 74 tasters with 35 successful IDs, which leads to 47% of the tasters identifying correctly, the odd beer out, which actually leads to a P value aggregated at 0 0.009. Again, a significant result. Hooray, hooray. Right. Now, of course, we're calling this a qualified success, changing the results around, because of the eight trials that we had then, two of them showed significance and the other six didn't. So that's part of the reason why I'm a little hesitant to say big waving success, because here's a place where I think the statistics kind of fall, fall over a little bit. Right. But uh, at least the way that we're using, which is, again, the reason why we want to change up how we're doing it. But for now... It's interesting because what this does is it points out, okay, there's there's something going on here, we think. And where it really becomes important, remember part of what we said when we introduced the whole Brutan B concept was that Brutan B is supposed to help with the oxidation reactions, it's supposed to help with clarity and a couple of other uh, gizmos that you have going on in the beer, but it's really that oxidation and shelf life idea more than anything else. And right one of one of the major touted benefits of Brutan B is that uh, it increases the amount of time you can store your beer without any uh, negative effects. Right. So what we what we had here though was of these eight trials, seven of the trials were done while the beer or sorry, actually all eight of the trials were done while the beer was fresh, which in theory would mean that we're going to get a less of a chance to see the oxidation uh, effect that Brutan B supposedly has. What I thought was really great was Mike actually, when he sent in his results, also sent in 
a set of pictures of the exact same beers four months down the line. And put them in the exact same glasses. He uses these really nice uh, Cantillon uh, taster glasses, which I'm totally jealous of because they're awesome. And <laughs> in the first photo, you can see, you know, both the beers appear relatively the same. And in the second photo, four months down the line, you can see that the Brutan B batch has gone significantly clearer. And uh, more importantly to Mike's results, he said that when he did the original tastings, only three of the people who got it correct preferred the non-Brutan B batch. Uh, and that was mainly because they thought the bitterness was more pronounced. The ones who chose uh, the Brutan B beer uh, thought it had a softer hot profile in the, in the start of it. And when he tasted them again four months later, this is what he reported back. Four months later, huge clarity difference, and more importantly, a huge difference in aroma and taste. The Brutan version still has a good amount of aroma and a nice crisp taste where the non-Brutan version now has zero aroma and a flat taste and is showing signs of oxidation. Now, obviously, there wasn't a triangle test done here, but right. that pro uh, points to me the fact that we're right in the fact that what we really want to do is we want to repeat this experiment, but do it so that people are letting the beer sit for a while and come back to them and then do the test. Because I think Mike's results point to where this stuff can really, really shine. Hey, and, you know, it, it's certainly one of those things that I intend to do for myself. Uh, I'm going to brew back-to-back -back badges uh, like I did before, except the trouble was last time I drank them. <laughs> this time I'm going to uh, to bottle some and age them for at least the four months that Mike did and uh, see what happens. Yeah, and also, uh, since we didn't really have the results fully tabulated by the time we were talking last week, couple of other things, uh, the subjective responses that we saw out there that were kind of interesting. Uh, the tasters overall with the Brutan B batch noticed a couple of things in their reports when they said, okay, this is what we're seeing when we taste these. Uh, flavors were more blended and less harsh and kind of leading to a more overall round flavor that people were sort of perceiving. Uh, they were less bitter, but had better hop aroma. And ultimately also were clearer looking, and at least in one case also threw a better head when uh, the beer that had the dark malts in it, the Cascadian Dark Ale. So that was kind of interesting where people saw these as the subjective responses, where it was sort of a more muted initial flavor, particularly in terms of bitterness, which if you think about it, in the lager world is preferred, in our craft beer world might not be so preferred, but it seemed like rounder more balanced, more integrated, and then possibly if Mike's results are correct, we would see this impact staying in that exact same fashion down the road. Yeah, and, and, and in regard to the bitterness, I've got to say that uh, when I've been, I've been making a lot of IPAs recently, I don't know, I've just been in that mood, and I'm putting Brutan in all of them, and... You know, the fact that it may kind of like mellow the bitterness a bit doesn't mean that you can't get the bitterness that you want uh, in the beer. I have been having no problems with that whatsoever. And uh, as you may or may not know, I'm the kind of guy who likes a nice slap in the face of bitterness from my IPAs. And yet you don't like a slap in the face from me when we see each other. <laughs> well, you know, that's because you run too fast for me to pay it back. <laughs> Woo! You're probably the that's, only. That's the advantage of losing all that weight. Huh? You're probably the only person in the universe I'm faster than. Uh, 
Now, also in terms of other reactions to the Brutambi experiment, we we had a lot of different reactions coming in from different segments of the the world. A lot of people really pointing out, hey, you know, this is kind of interesting. A lot of people also pointing out, uh, well, what does this mean? Uh, this doesn't seem very significant, which, you know, it's true. You know, this is sort of a blended result that we have here. But then also people asking where where they can buy it. And currently in the States, you can't. We hope to announce soon that you will be able to. But you still can buy it from Australia and have it shipped here. Yeah, And you can finally experience what folks in other countries experience when they order homebrew goods from the U.S. <laughs> yeah, namely in terms yeah. of shipping. If things go as planned, uh, by, uh, by this summer, uh, it should be in the homebrew supply chain. So keep your eyes open and we will definitely make an announcement when we find out about it. Yeah. And also, I really want to put a, a point or two. There was a really great article done actually last summer uh, by ImmaculateBrewery.com uh, about the whole oxygen in the mash and, you know, okay, different staling reactions and importance of things uh, in reference to some Lodo techniques and other attempts to sort of mitigate this and whether or not you have to mitigate it, whether it does actually have a thing. And what I thought was really great was it did a really good job of pointing out where things are possibly having impacts on where they're probably not having impacts. But there is also a little bit of a segment in the the end talking about Brutan B as a, as a sort of another method for getting around any sort of oxygen staling type reactions. So we'll include a link to that. I think that's going to be important for people to see. Yeah, if you're at all interested in this kind of thing, this is one of the uh, most objective and balanced articles I've read uh, on both sides of the oxygen in your brewing uh, debate. And he makes some great points, and he uh, makes them scientifically and in a way that even I can understand them. Yeah, that, so, that uh, takes some talent. Yeah, it does indeed. You know, that's why I was impressed. Uh, so uh, we will definitely post a link to this on our website, experimentalbrew.com. And uh, if this is a subject that interests you at all, I highly recommend that you read this article because it really kind of gives you a lot of points to think about to make your own decision about what you want to do. And it uh, it does talk about the Brutan B also. Yeah, and I would say if you haven't read the write-up yet, you know, if you just listened to the podcast and you haven't read the write-up, go to the website and read the, the write-up because there's a lot more data in there. And also, very importantly, something we can't do on podcasts, there are a ton of pictures in here because the Igors did a great job. They got all the pictures in, in place, and we selected what we thought were the most significant ones that were there. But you can really see from different steps of the process what the different impacts of the Brutan B looked like, whether or not there was some that was visible. Sometimes it doesn't seem that visible. But I think some of the ones I saw in there, other than Mike's uh, beers that were really cool, were... Uh, some of the pictures from people doing hose tests where they were racking out of secondary or racking out of after primary. And you can see like the Brutan B looks very different than the control batch without the Brutan B. I also, uh, Eric Pierce, who's asked a couple of questions, is also uh, an Igor. Uh, he had a bit of a, a mistake in his execution of the, the trial, but he has these great pictures side by side of the carboys as they're settling and the break difference between a batch that only had Brutan B in the mash and a batch that had Brutan B both in the mash and the boil. Oh, cool. And then I think the, yeah. And the other one that was also really cool to me was uh, Sean Shannon who did the Cascadian dark ale. Look at the hoses that he has for the kegs. And remember same, same recipe. This is a dark beer. This was the only one of the dark beers that we had. So this was an interesting uh, result to me. 
The one on the left, which is the control batch, is sort of a, a pale brown. The one on the right, which has the Brutan B, is a much deeper, richer brown color. And I don't know if there's a, a chemical pathway explanation for this, because I'm not that sophisticated with the chemistry. And uh, as I've had some discussions with people online, when you start uh, talking about high molecular weight uh, phenol type uh, chemistry, it gets even weirder and more confusing. Uh, and but there is there's a, a definite uh, noticeable difference there. And so I thought that was really interesting. I think the pictures tell you some some of the story just beyond what the numbers are also going to tell you. Uh, to me, I think yeah, we still fall into the, definitely. Yeah. And to me, I think we still fall in the same realm of this is very interesting. It points to a need for further exploration. The one thing that you absolutely cannot say is that it doesn't do anything. Uh, you know, it, uh, to me, it's obvious that there's something going on there and exactly what and how is worthy of uh, continued trial. And speaking of continued trials. Yes. Uh, look at that segue. <laughs> <laughs> He's good, isn't he? Yeah. We have a change to announce to the Igor program. So if you've been trying to apply to be an Igor, you've noticed that you haven't gotten much of a response from me. My problem is, uh, well, between the new show that we're doing and the fact that I got promoted at work, and I have even more things I'm supposed to be doing, I have fallen way horribly drastically behind. So, we have a solution in place. Because our Igors are eager to do things, and I have to be able to help them do the things, and I'm not able to help them do the things right now. We are actually asking uh, one of our Igors, uh, Jason Mundy, who was in this last experiment as well, who has a brew board that I'm actually kind of jealous of because I thought that was rather snazzy. Uh, Jason Mundy is actually going to step up and he's going to help us coordinate the Igors. And what we're hoping to do is actually make it so that the Igors are a little more self-running and they can actually come back with more results faster to us and not depend upon me being the gatekeeper on everything because that's a horrible idea because I have no time. <laughs> and he's tired of me yelling at him all the time. Yeah, you're a mean old man. So yeah, that's uh, true. Jason Mundy will uh, will be stepping up to to help us. I imagine we will also be recruiting other Igors. If the Igors who are listening are interested in helping coordinate experiments, please reach out to us and let us know because I want to make sure that we do that and we'll have a big old discussion on our hidden group list. Drew promises to actually answer your emails if you uh, if you email us and uh, tell us you want to do something. Yep, indeed. All right. So that's the that's the lab segment. I think, like I said, uh, some interesting things, some interesting changes, uh, both in the report that we saw for Brutan B and how we're going to do some of the experiments that are coming down the line. We do have uh, some experiments still floating out there that we're going to be getting results on uh, fairly soon, like our keg purge experiment and our draft carbonation experiment about whether or not how you actually carbonate the beer matters. Is it gentle, better, or can you slam the hell out of these things? Gentle and still have is always better. Okay, so I guess it's time for some lounging now, huh? Yes, I need a chair. <laughs> okay, we've beaten this horse enough. We're going to head over to the lounge and uh, find another one to whack on. We'll be right back. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. 
Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Made our way from the brewery to the lounge. What, the, what is that? Is Drew singing? What? Uh, it's the girl. We are now in the lounge, and we're going to uh, listen to a little interview that Drew did with Bob Sylvester of Saint Somewhere Brewery in Tarpon Springs, Florida. Yeah, and I just want to say, I got the chance to talk to Bob. Uh, well, really, I guess last month uh, now, and. Visited his brand new brewing facility up there in uh, Tarpon Springs, Florida, and Bob is uh, Bob is a hoot. Bob is one of the nicest, sweetest guys you'll ever meet, and Bob makes some wonderful beers. He is very much in a well classical Belgian tradition to the point where you'll hear about some of his fun ferment, uh, fermentation techniques, and also exactly how he knows how to treat a roof in a brand new brewery. So, <laughs> oh, and also wow. why skateboards are very important in a brewery. So. I think without further ado, <laughs> right. Denny should roll that beautiful uh, bean footage. All right, here comes Bob. All right, hi everybody, I'm Drew, and I'm currently sitting here in the middle of Tarpon Springs, Florida, at the sort of wonderfully put together uh, St. Somewhere <laughs> Brewing Company, an exercise in home brewing gone mad, turned pro, <laughs> and well, with all the creative spirit of hardware repurposement. And yeah, I'm, that's a that's a great uh, description. I like that. <laughs> yeah, you guys will uh, be able to see at some point a picture of an infamous skateboard that is well known around the brewing world, <laughs> and we'll talk about that. Uh, but I am sitting here with Bob. Bob, introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Bob Sylvester. I'm the owner and uh, brewer at Saint Somewhere Brewing Company. And when was Saint Somewhere founded? Uh, Two thousand six. So in, back in the dark ages. There you go. Just before the, the whole explosion of everybody going, hey, you know, maybe we can make beer. Um, all right. So I always like to start uh, our interviews with a, one of my favorite questions. Uh, what is your favorite curse word? Uh, favorite or the one I use the most? If they're different, <laughs> I would say give us both. Uh, yeah, it probably have to be shit. Hmm? Is it, and that's both or is that... It's a, yeah, it's both. There you go. Well, you are you are different than most of the brewers because so far, uh, uh, f- is the winner by far. Yeah, well, that's too mainstream. So, I like <laughs> but that. Bob's got to be different. <laughs> yeah, but that's you know when something happens, it's the first thing that pops into my head. Just <laughs> now, when did you first discover good beer? Well, you, you have to go back a ways because Florida was a was a wasteland of beer for a number of reasons. But the the major reason was there was a container size law mm-hmm. uh, up until the year. 2000, 2001, the only beer you could buy in Florida uh, had to be in a 12-ounce, 16-ounce, 32-ounce, or a gallon or more. Right. So it eliminated pretty much any genuine import other than, you know, Beck's, Heineken, you know, the, the usual animals. Um, I guess when I, when I was 18, drinking age was 18, I uh, discovered uh, Bass Ale which in those days was still 
brewed on the Burton Union system. It was mm-hmm. it was a really good beer. It's not you know what it is today, and that's 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 probably the my my big gateway beer. Yeah, the the infamous Red Triangle. I, and I remember, mm-hmm. so listeners of the podcast will remember. I grew up in Florida, and yeah, I remember when Florida was. A beer desert, uh, a a wasteland of good intentions and terrible yeah. uh, terrible hoppy choices. Yeah, and and by design because Florida had uh, had two Anheuser Busch breweries and a Schlitz brewery, so they you know they they made they, the rules. They feared the Belgians. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and then um, so we go from that, and at some point in time, how do you get into brewing? Uh, one Christmas, uh, my wife, Ann bought, bought me a Mr. Beer kit. Oh no. The gateway drug. Yeah. I, man, I, I can't speak highly enough of, of Mr. Beer. It's a, you know, it doesn't make fantastic beer, but, uh, I always say it, it's, it's like the, uh, the free rock crack that the dealer gives the kid and says, <laughs> no, 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 you, you'll be back. First one's free. Yeah. <laughs> Next thing you know, you've got kettles everywhere, kegs going around. Exactly. Bottles. Yeah, you're yeah. getting kicked out of the house and into <laughs> yeah. the shed. And yeah, your, sp- your spouse looks at you and goes, what happened to you? <laughs> All right. And then, uh, so we go home brewing and then, obviously, and then 2006, we get the, the brewery located in a little tiny warehouse district in Wonderful Tarpon Springs, Florida. Yeah, on on the outskirts of Tarpon. Yeah, and which if is saying something. Yeah, I was gonna say if you've ever been in Tarpon Springs, Tarpon <laughs> Springs is already kind of the outskirts, the old sponge fishing village, the, the the fringe. Yeah, and so now, what made you open up out here, particularly because I remember when about when you opened, uh, because it was oh hey, kind of cool. Somebody's uh, somebody's doing Belgian focused beers in Florida. God bless him and good luck. And <laughs> yeah. then I said, and he's in Tarpon Springs. Yeah, what the hell? So why out here? Um, I, I always say I need to come up with a more romanticized story of of why we ended up in Tarpon Springs. But the the truth of the matter is, two thousand six. That was the peak of the housing market. Mm-hmm. So everywhere we looked, and you know, the only thing we could afford were little. You know, 1,200, 1,600 square foot uh, industrial space. The classic uh, yeah. crappier starter. And during the housing boom, all of those spaces everywhere were taken by cabinet makers, carpenters, plumbers, you know, people in the in the building industry. So there, there were no vacancies anywhere close to home. I live in Odessa, which is kind of a suburb of, of Tampa. So we live closer to, to Tampa. Um, and we kept expanding the, the range of how far I wanted to drive every day. And I ended, ended up in Tarpon Springs. Uh, I was having lunch with my dad and at the next table over somebody, I, it was somebody that was working on the building and we overheard them and, you know, asked them about it, went and looked at the site. Uh, it was a brand new little industrial park and, uh, we jumped on it that day. Well, there you go. And, yeah, you're right. You need a more romantic story. Something yeah. about sponges and Belgian beer. Yeah, and, yeah, should, but yeah, the, the, the monk's holy bath. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, you know, we we've come to love Tarpon Springs because it's really a cool, quirky place. It's I always equated to the way Key West was uh, 40 years ago. I mean, it really is. It's before the cruise ships and the, yeah, and the party. It, it's you know, it's dinky little dive bars, a few good restaurants. Uh, it's still a it's still a legitimate working fishing town, 
and uh, you know you get the characters that uh, that, that go with a fishing town. So it's I, uh, we love it here. Yeah, and that and that's the reason why all the sponge jokes because there was a, a big local sponge <laughs> industry here for yeah. Oh, uh, right now it's the largest. Uh, it's a sponge capital of the world, natural sponge capital of the world. Well, there you go. Every town has to be known for something, and there it might go. as well be known for natural sponges. <laughs> All right, um, my absolute favorite question. Uh, omitting the word balance, describe your brewing philosophy. <laughs> uh, definitely not the B word. <laughs> um, my personal personal brewing philosophy is, is is summed up just use use what you've got, use what you've been given, uh, and that. That goes to you know the equipment. That goes to ingredients. That goes to the water. Um, you know terroir, if you want to call it that. Uh, you know use use what's around you. Um, a, a lot of let's say the you know the landmark beers of the world. Um, you know Bass Ale being one, Pilsner or Kell being another. You know there there are dozens of them that people try to emulate. You know the water profile. They try to emulate you know everything they did, and if you think about it, you know Bass Ale was what it was just because they decided to brew beer there. Same with you know Pilsner Kell. The water's really soft. That's the the way the beer came out. Um, you know I'm not saying live with you know chlorine and all that in the water, but uh, you know I'm, I'm I'm a big proponent of of making a beer that really can't be made anywhere else. So use what your mama gave you. Yeah. And, of course, now that's perfect because, well, you may not be using sponges in your beer, but you do have a local <laughs> character. Yeah, you have a local character to your beer. So yeah. I, think, I think there can be no discussion of Saint Somewhere if we don't talk about, you know, sort of the Saint Somewhere yeast character and where all that's yeah. coming from. So walk us through this. Uh, that came from – some of it was accidental at the very beginning and then it, it – Worked really well, so I just kind of went with it. Um, when I was opening the brewery, you know, we did it just right out of pocket, credit cards. You know, didn't really borrow any money. Uh, so, uh, you know, I spent a year looking at, at things as far as equipment. Uh, and in those days, there weren't, you know, 47 different manufacturers. Uh, the idea of, of Chinese equipment was not even I – don't, I don't even think they manufactured anything – as far as brewing equipment in, in China at that point, it was, you know, pub systems, JV, you know, there, there were a handful of companies mm -hmm. and it was all just very expensive. You had to buy, you know, the brew house. So I kind of stumbled upon these small uh, wine fermenters and they were, they were glycol jacketed. They, to me, they looked like, yeah, okay, you can, you can ferment beer in these. Mm -hmm. uh, and they had, uh, they had tops, Float, uh, they're called floating lids, but the lids will come completely off. And to me, I'm like, oh, that makes it very easy to clean. Indeed. So I, I started with those, and for the first six, eight months, uh, you know, I was, I was pitching, you know, fresh yeast in every batch, and um, eventually noticed, you know, we were, we were kind of building a house character, mm -hmm. and, you know, dawned on me that, you know, hey, that's coming basically from wild yeast in the area because nothing is sealed. I would just set the lids on top of the, the fermenters. So I thought, well, you know, let's go a step further. 
still pitch a uh, you know clean E strain, but let's leave the lids off and see what happens. And uh, it it worked pretty well. We had quite a bit of you know wild yeast and fauna in the air, and it, uh, it it's always secondary to our house strain, which started life as uh, the Dupont strain. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So that that keeps Dupont. most of it in check because that's a pretty aggressive strain. Uh, but it allowed you know the the brat and you know the little bit of PDO and you know all the all the goodies that were just floating around uh, ferment the beer. And I also dawned on me in those days, hey, let, let's reuse this yeast, even though it's a mixed culture, and we'll just perpetuate that you know on and on from batch to batch to batch, rather than pitching a new strain and hoping something was in the air that day. So and that's. Now, do you actually have like Saint somewhere magical blend preserved someplace, or is it? Yeah, I I, I did at one point and called it up a, a couple of times, and it wasn't. It it changed. Mm-hmm. You know, I I don't know the dormancy Free- or the process that freezers they, do thing, man. Yeah, I wasn't as happy with it uh, as I was just using a you know recycled third or fourth generation, uh, you know, DuPont strain and, and our ambient yeast. So now I have to ask you, you recently moved because you did a, a very successful Kickstarter. You've opened up yeah. a, a, a brasserie that we're sitting around the corner from. Uh, and now you've also moved the brewery out of that industrial warehouse that you were for the longest time. Right. And now you're in your own private space with, uh, where we're currently sitting is the uh, future museum of St. Somewhere, uh, <laughs> AKA office. It, AKA it's Stranger. a lovely, lovely setup uh, yeah. where we're sitting. But did you have any concerns about making that move and, and a possible change to your character? Uh, yeah, I did uh, for a couple of reasons. The, the old location was less than a quarter mile uh, from the Gulf. So we had this constant, you know, breeze during the summer. It's a hotter than hell breeze, but at least, you know, there's a breeze coming off of the Gulf, and uh, and just we had, you know, 10 years of yeast built up in the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's in the equipment. It, it was it was everywhere. Um, that did concern me moving because we're mo- we moved uh, almost two miles away from the Gulf. So it's only a two-mile distance from here to the old place, but, you know, you don't, you don't get that that breeze off of the Gulf. You, you don't think your yeasty and other critters have uh, good enough wings? Yeah. Well, they, I, you know, I didn't, I don't know. I, di- <laughs> I didn't know. Um, but the new building uh, for the brewery, um, unfortunately you can't see it on a podcast. Um, but we had to, had to have a, an entire new roof put on. And I asked the, uh, the architect and the contractors, whatever the minimum number of trusses you think is feasible for this, just just double it. So the roof structure, if, if you lay on your back and look straight up, it looks like the bottom of, uh, let's say, an old ship from the 1700s. It's mm-hmm. just truss after truss after truss um, to, to capture, you know, the brat and the wild yeast. Uh, before we moved in, I took uh, uh, a five-gallon pump sprayer full of... Uh, Full of finished beer, <laughs> and I hose down, hose down the rafters, uh, hose down the walls, uh, you know, to, to give us a little kickstart, and it, it seems to be working. 
I love it. I, I, I would, I would love to see like you know your new neighbors in this location in Tarpon Springs walking in, and you're sitting there <laughs> spraying down the walls and the roof with beer and going, "What have we allowed into our neighborhood?" <laughs> they probably would have thought of some religious, you know, thing. No, I'm gonna Yes, brother Bob. Um, <clears throat> all right, so let's actually it, as another sort of talk about uh, recipe and philosophy because I mean, mm-hmm. you have a number of different beers and you're fairly widely distributed because of your relationship with the Shelton brothers. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you should be able to find these and gorgeous, gorgeous romantic style artwork on the labels uh, and very eclectic names and very eclectic recipe choices. But let's talk about the one that, uh, that you poured for us before we started this talk. Uh, okay. This is uh, from 2014. And which, which one of the beers was this? And uh, it, it's, a version of our Lectio Divina, which is really nothing more than a very simple Belgian double recipe. Uh, but instead of, you know, buying the, the candy sugar, again, I'm, I'm, I'm cheap. So I figured, eh, you know, how hard can it be to make? So I, I started uh, making my own Spanish liquor, which is basically just burnt sugar beyond caramelization, just burnt. And uh, that's that's where most of the character of this beer comes from. Uh, the one we're drinking now uh, was a um, a beer we did for the Rare Beer Club, the, the old Michael Jackson's Rare Beer Club. Mm-hmm. And we've done done a, a handful of beers for them. And this one, uh, Lectio, is normally eight uh, percent. We bumped this up to ten percent. Um, I let it age a little longer in the tank to, to as a little whiny character, mm-hmm. uh, and I I had uh, add one. They they ordered a ton of beer for me. It was you know a major undertaking to try to get all this beer done on a certain date and a certain time, have it consistent. Um, but the last batch, unfortunately, they kind of cut back on on what how much they wanted. Um, I was in a hurry, and I bottled it too soon, and it just became way overcarbonated. So I kept a pallet of it from it was early 2014. Mm-hmm. Uh, just let it sit in the <laughs> sit in the brewery, and uh, we're drinking it now. And it, it to me, it's it it's almost has a like a sherry or mm-hmm. a you know Madeira quality to it. Yeah, it doesn't. And I'm noticing, you know, you're talking about the the burnt uh, the burnt sugar. And yeah, I mean, you get that burnt character in there. You've got the sort of double malt and the fruity esters in there. But then, like we were talking with your wild, your assisted wild pitch, shall yeah. we say, that uh, just that nice little burnt character and uh, an acidity that really does bring home that whininess. So now let's talk about because I know you've also used some relatively unique ingredients before uh, a couple of years ago when the Shelton brothers festival was in Los Angeles down by the port of mm-hmm. San Pedro, you had, uh, was it Athena? It was one one done with Florida grapes. Oh, uh, Cynthiana. Cynthiana. There we go. Yeah. Cynthiana is probably my favorite of our portfolio. You're not, yeah, you're not supposed to have a favorite child, but yeah, Cynthiana is it. Um, Cynthiana grapes are also known as Norton grapes, are thought to be the the original or the the the, the native North American red grape from which all of the other non French red grapes came from. Right. Uh, it's also one of the few real grapes that grows in Florida. 
You can grow muscadine grapes in Florida, but most vintners don't even consider them grapes because they don't grow in a bunch. They just grow randomly on the vine. But uh, the Nortons are growing a bunch, and they're they're frankly not a very good grape. <laughs> they're they're very very high in acidity. Uh, there's the grape itself has like zero sweetness. Uh, it's all skin, but it it adds quite a bit to the beer. It, uh, it it adds you know kind of an earthiness, umami, let's say, uh, and it ferments out beautifully. makes makes a pretty decent wine, and it makes a great beer. From terrible grapes, great drinking product. Yeah. Yeah, and I it's amazing. You, you were you were very proud of that beer when when you were pouring out the festival because you were you were like, this is my baby. Yeah, yeah, it is. And unfortunately, I haven't been able to brew that for the past couple of years. Um, my my main source for the grapes, uh, they just stopped harvesting. They they let the let the vineyard go, uh, and then um, last year I had a connection to get some grapes. Uh, it's a fairly local winery. They're about twenty miles from here. And uh, he said, well, I'll let you know when we're crushing them and you can just come and get the must. Mm-hmm. I said, well, when's that going to be? He said, uh, well, when the grapes are ready. Like, when are the grapes going to be ready? Well, when they're done. So I happened to be in Orlando brewing a collaboration with um, uh, Brent at Red Light, Red Light. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I got the call. And I'm like, I, I, I can't come get them. And that was, that was the end of that. Yeah. So that's, we, that's the unfortunate part about dealing with a – a fresh agricultural product, yes. Yeah. Particularly wine grapes. When they're ready, you'd better be ready. If you're not ready, too bad. So sad. Yeah. So I'm um, uh, trying to plan ahead a little better this year, and uh, be more available uh, during during the harvest and uh, and the crush. No trips during harvest season. Yeah. All right. Um, so stepping outside of the world of Saint Somewhere beer, what beer do you find yourself? Uh, longing to drink that you really like to drink when you have the chance um i'm assuming it's not bass anymore no no (laughs) (laughs) i I do still like you know decent british ales Mm -hmm. uh probably my my one go-to like you know let's call it desert island beer would have to be orval yeah that's very good and i mean that's funny because there's a through line between orval and your beer, and I know, I don't know if you get this comparison a lot, but I, I always, for some reason, have you and Jolly Pumpkin kind of categorized in sort of the same vein in my head. Where yeah, you know, I I wouldn't say that just because you know Ron's a brewing god to me, and I, I would never never put us on the same level. Well, his his stuff is you know in the stratosphere, and but I mean it's a it's a very similar sort of. Uh, Philosophy, I think, in, in in sort of playing with the ingredients and what comes. Yeah, I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd say that. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you're both very Brett focused. Although I would say that Jolly Pumpkin's work is more Brett and bacteria and lacto, right? And yours is more beer with a push, right? And we, you know, the Jolly Pumpkin stuff up until the past few years, it was 100 percent barrel fermented. Mm-hmm. Um, ours still to this day, uh, it's 100 percent stainless. Uh, a lot of people think we do, you know, barrel aging and Brett barrels and nuts. We try to get as as much, let's say, as much funk out of stainless as you can possibly get. Yeah. Well, and to be fair, I've seen the same sort of tanks that you have hanging out here in the brewery 
in uh, Phantom. Yeah, they have yeah. Their, they have the very similar tanks. I think theirs are the Italian ones with the red labels. I think yeah. yours are blue. Uh, but so I mean, those are in good company for being used that way. And again, with that yeah. same sort of little natural assist happening yeah. with the beer. And uh, I, 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 we pretty much pioneered the use of these in the U.S. for for brewing saisons. Now they they've kind of become the norm. And it was, I mean, it was strictly out of me being cheap. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but they're they're perfect. I mean, flat bottom, straight sides, open top, ideal. Well, and listeners of our podcast will know that we did an experiment last year where we had, you know, people complain about the DuPont strain all the time. Like, oh, it stalls out, it stalls out. I've always opened fermented my saisons, you know, just with a cap of foil on top of the thing and let yeah. it go. Doesn't never, like pressure. Yeah, n- never had a problem with it. So we had experimenters do it. We had six different experimenters run the experiment, like the same wort. 565 with uh, an airlock, 565 with uh, just foil cap on top of it. And of the six experimenters, five saw no stall with the, the open fermentation version. So it, people will know, I really push people to try and do open fermentation because uh, yeah. I think it works. I've been saying that for years, and people say, oh, that's nuts. It's not going to make a difference. There's not any pressure with an airlock. Well, of course there is. There's got to be enough pressure to... Bubble through the airlock. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's back pressure, maybe it's CO two toxicity. It's something, but yeah. but those strains really do prefer open fermentation. So, kudos to you for uh, pulling that one on a, on a professional level. All right. So, also while we've talked about the yeast and the philosophy, we also do have to talk a little bit more about the hardware because there are a couple of infamous pieces of hardware here in the brewery. <laughs> yeah, uh, and the first has to be the skateboard. Yeah, that was uh, that was again came out of uh, necessity. Um, when I was waiting for, for permits on the old place, uh, I, buddy of mine who is a home brewer, uh, who also was a VP of sales for a pump company, hooked me up with a pump and a, a variable speed controller. Mm-hmm. But that was it. It was the pump and the controller. There was, you know, the thing weighs 60 pounds, so you can't exactly just carry it around. <clears throat> so I bought a uh, just a real cheap hand truck, and the guy next door to me was a metal fabricator. He was going to weld it up so it's on the hand truck, and we can push it around and move it from place to place. And, uh, you know, two months went by, three months went by, oh, I haven't gotten to it. You know, finally six months, I'm still waiting for the permits to go through. This guy hasn't done anything. I'm like, I you know, just give it back to me. I'll I'll do something with it. So I went to Walmart. I bought the cheapest skateboard I could find. You know, drilled holes, mounted the thing on the skateboard uh, to move it around and to mount the uh, the speed control box. I took a uh, flagpole holder, screwed that into the back of the the uh, skateboard, and just stuck a broom handle in there and put the speed controller on the broom handle. And that's it. Yeah. And now you may be wondering why we're talking about a skateboard with a pump attacher. This thing is infamous <laughs> in, in the brewing world. Like in the professional brewing world, yeah. there are people who, who joke about it. We were just uh, – currently behind us, there is a, a collaboration brew session going on between uh, Saint Somewhere, uh, Yazoo, and Jester King uh, with a whole bunch of citrus and, uh, well, a Walmart strainer or a dollar store strainer <laughs> involved. But – we were just talking about the the skateboard, and somebody was like, uh, "Well, yeah, if you'd offered that thing up for sale for charity purposes when you were moving, <laughs> I would have bought it for a thousand dollars." So, and that and that you know that 
topic came up. We were thinking about doing that, but I, I still use it. I mean, we do, we do have you know we did upgrade to centrifuge pumps because it's a um, it's a flexible impeller pump, so you mm-hmm. can't get you know the pressure you need to really move a spray ball. So yep. we still use it to to move beer from you know the the mash tun to the to the kettle and back and forth. It still works. Hey, whatever. I mean, look, I have pieces of brewing gear I've been using for the entire time I've been homebrewing because for precisely that reason, I'm too yeah. damn cheap to go buy a new one. And they work. Yeah. Um, and then there's also, we have to talk about the other piece of, well, maybe the hardware itself isn't unique, but the use of the hardware is unique. And I'm thinking very specifically of the, uh, I think it's the mash ton hot tub. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I think we should delve into the Occupy and and go from there because, yeah, you have a hot tub mash tun. Yeah, that, that happens on occasion. Not not real often. It's got to, you know, moon's got to be in the right place. And, uh, we yeah, we have these, these events that uh, we, we start calling them, you know, Occupy Saint somewhere because I, I was out of town early on and I left the keys with uh, – a buddy of mine, Bob Lorber, and uh, we, we we had just started doing what we call tour night. Tour night was nothing more than we'd stick a tent outside and a, and a table and chairs, and for ten dollars, we'd sell you a glass and you got three free pours. We didn't have a we didn't have a beer and wine license, so legally we could give give away free beer. You buy the glass, we you know recoup some money. So we were having you know. On a good night, we were having six people show up. So I go out of town. I'm at a beer festival in Jupiter, and my phone is, like, exploding. I'm getting all these pictures, and I'm looking at them. (laughs) There's, like, 70 people in the brewery. I'm like, what the the hell's going on? So he, you know, as soon as I I let him know about it, he just started hammering everybody to, you know, come out to the brewery and have this giant party. So we kind of anniversary that at random intervals hmm. and uh it's it's yeah it's you 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 occupy the brewery and and uh, as it goes you know lorber does the the occupies and i uh i'm a guest <laughs> i'm a guest in my own brewery what the yeah. hell happened yeah, yeah. I, i've heard i've heard uh stories from other members of the family about occupies yeah so, we don't we don't talk about what, what happens in occupy stays in occupy unless there's a picture yeah <laughs> And the, uh, yeah, the, on, on, I guess it was during the, during the winter, Vier's Day, that's a whole nother story, but Vier's Day was an Occupy, and uh, it, it, it's also a big bottle share, right. you know, the, everybody brings all kinds of stuff. So, you know, semi-late into the evening, uh, we thought it'd be a good idea to Use the mash tun as, as a hot tub, and uh, that was fun. <laughs> well, and, and who knows? I mean, you, you we were talking to about, the terroir. Yeah, I was going to say we were talking about sort of the natural assist that you're going. Who knows what sort of additional kettle chemistry you're getting, mash chemistry that you're exactly. getting from Florida bodies. Yeah, because I, I I know the people that were in there that, uh, that I'm sure that permeated the stainless. <laughs> And our uh, yeah our ma- our mash tun if you can't picture it is, is basically it, it's just wide open no lid 
Uh, it's maybe five and a half feet in diameter on the inside. So basically, it's a giant hot tub. It is. All right, I have a 26-gallon kettle at home, and I always joke that if I really wanted to, I could take a bath in the dang thing. <laughs> but then, then I see the pictures of the St. Somewhere uh, sauna and spa, and uh, wow, that really uh, puts that to shame. <laughs> yeah, we again, it's uh, it's not a regular thing. I think we've only done it uh, two or three times. And... All right, well, the mash tub, hot tub, yeah, not the occupies. Yeah, well, thank God for all of us. My is not in. All right, um, so let me see here, real quick. Yeah. All right. So what uh, brewing common wisdom do you think is wrong? Like the thing that everybody tells you that you have to do that you're like, mm, no. Oh, wow. Uh, recipes. Just winging? Yeah. Um, you know, le- learn how to brew and then throw the recipes out. Because you're... you're uh, res- recipes and most homebrew recipes, although they've, they've gotten much better now, uh, have... have Entirely way too many ingredients, way too many grains. Um, you know, most professional brewers, you know, will we'll use three, four grains. Um, yeah, I know the idea is to, well, you want to you build this character and this character, but you can, you can do it with, with less rather than, uh, than more. But, I, yeah, lear, learn how to brew, why things happen the way they happen, and then, uh, throw, you know, get rid of the recipe books and just brew your own beer. You know, if you're if you're a professional chef, you're you're not looking at somebody else's recipe book, you know, to to make your your dish. Right. Yeah. You, you can use recipe as inspiration, and it's kind of go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As a guideline. Yeah. All right. And then, so we talked about some of your favorite flavors with the the yeast. What What are some of your and also the the Cynthiana grapes? What What are some of your other flavor, favorite flavors to use? Um, I really like hibiscus. We use hibiscus quite a bit in in a number of beers as either a feature or, you know, background. Uh, our Pay de Soleil, which is uh, one of our older semi-flagship beers, uh, has hibiscus in it, but it, it's a, uh, you know, it's a bigger, more of an amber beer, so the hibiscus is a little hidden, mm-hmm. but you still get that, that kind of floral tartness. Um, we also do a couple that are, you know, nothing but hibiscus to the point where they're pink, and you get a you get a completely different effect from uh, from that, and it, it's just a fun thing to work with. Okay. Um, any other uh, any other beer thoughts that you think people should pay attention to, like, uh, or any other thoughts that you have in your brewing world that that we haven't talked about so far? Um, beer strength. I don't know. Uh, yeah, brew. Uh, uh, you know, brew what you like, yeah, and and that'll that'll lead to you know to other things. Brew lagers, brew lagers. Oh, you know, and I totally. Oh, you see, yeah, all right. I mean, right. I'm, I'm I'm sitting here. You know, I I don't brew a lager. I do nothing but farmhouse sales. But yeah, brew brew lagers. Well, and you know, the, I totally forgot to ask. <clears throat> so, why? I mean, so you started as a as a bass drinker and everything else. How did you make that shift and decide that you're your brewery was going to be all farmhouse ales. Um, as a home brewer, I always like or gravitated towards, you know, Belgian styles because mm-hmm. they're, 
little more eccentric. And again, they they weren't. You didn't have to strictly adhere to to a recipe. You can figure out the base and then you know then wing it. Because mm-hmm. they're you know anyone that's gone to Belgium, there there are no styles there. It's no style on the label. Nope. You order a beer, it is what it is. Yep. I mean, it's you got a blonde, a, brute, uh, a blonde, a brune, and an ambery. Yeah, and that's about it. Yeah, and and you know they're wildly different within those three. Yep. And so, uh, for you, it was just that natural sort of looseness and variation that yeah. drew you to it. Yeah. And then, I mean, of course, with the wine fermenters and the natural fermentation, I mean, that really kind of helps as well. Yeah. It, it's uh, again. You know, I'd like to say it was by design, but it, it all just kind of fell together and, and became Saint Somewhere. Sometimes it's better to be lucky than smart. Well, <laughs> that's definitely me. <laughs> <laughs> so I do actually have to ask you about two things that I think oh, are somewhat <laughs> infamous with you. I mean, I, we keep talking about infamy and in, in Saint Somewhere. One, I've been instructed by the uh, the audience to ask about pumpkin beer and your thoughts. <laughs> okay. Uh, not a fan. Uh, really don't, don't like them. They've, they've been so overdone. You know, last year, I think, the, I think the peak was year before last when you started seeing them on the shelves in like July, which is ridiculous. Uh Although I I did a did a collaboration with Seven Sun, and just to to mock the whole pumpkin beer thing, we made a pumpkin beer, and uh, we used uh, the little marshmallow candy pumpkins. Awesome! And how was the beer? Uh, fantastic! Oh, there it's we great go. Great beer. All right, and now of course the one that, that I always think of because I know uh, you are a active participant in the Milk the Funk uh, Facebook group mm-hmm. and active participant in a lot of uh, brewing discussions that I see online and a very active dis- a very active participant in discussions regarding kettle souring. <laughs> yes. Care to, uh, care to enlighten the audience about uh, your belief about kettle souring? Um, again, in, unless you're, if you're making a Berliner or Goza, you know, go for it. Kettle sour all you want. Uh, I just see too many, too many people passing off something else, and it, and it's basically a kettle sour, and it's 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 a shortcut. So your objection to kettle souring is not so much uh, a belief that the technique is bad. It's the it's sort of the questionable presentation of sour beers that have been made by kettle souring as opposed to traditional methods. And Correct. A, and, and, and again, that's, you know, that's for me. I'm, I'm a traditionalist. Well, and, and there's, there's a reason there's traditions. And truthfully, there are some breweries out there who have been doing kettle soured beers where they charge, you know, basically a full multi-aged, multi-year aged yeah. price for that bottle of something kettle soured. And yeah, that's, that almost seems a little, Hey, that's not, Right, man. Yeah, and all along you can get a you know a bottle of uh, Rodenbach for half the price of said beer. Yeah. So, all right, but it yeah it, it's to to me it, it's if you're using it as a shortcut, then it, it's a shortcut. Um, 
you know, that's that's all I'm going <laughs> to say about that before yeah. I get myself in more trouble. Yeah, I was going to say, if you if you want to get the full spread of uh, Bob's opinions about kettle souring, uh, go into the Milk the Funk uh, Facebook group and go, <laughs> you know, so I was thinking about kettle souring this uh, Lambic and stand back. Cause <laughs> yeah. Because I, I think you'll see something fun happen. Or, or my, my favorite posts are, so I'm, I'm uh, going to brew a Saison. Here's the recipe. So, <laughs> So after you know after I pitch the pitch the uh, you know the the a lot of people are using the yogurt. Mm-hmm. So I get the pH down to this. I'm like, no, stop right there. There's there, there's no history of of you know lactic fermented saisons. Yeah, but it's not going to stop people from doing it. <laughs> no, and I, I you know I, I get the not to drone on about this, but you know then I get. People saying, oh, you're just, it's old and, you know, this is an innovation. And, well, no, it's not an innovation. They've been doing lactic fermentation for hundreds of years. Well, it's a shortcut. Well, and if you've ever done, you know, like a beer based on the Hinden Akasi, that's a lactic fermented beer because, I mean, it's being fermented by the lactobacillus on the grain. So, right. Yeah. Yeah, That's, it's nothing new. Yeah. I mean, that's as old as, as beer itself. So, exactly. There you go. All right. So, uh, Bob, before we leave, anything else that you want to tell the audience? Um, no. Keep uh, doing what you're doing. All right. Well, there you go. Keep on doing what you're doing, unless what you're doing is kettle souring and trying to pass it off as something you know, <laughs> yes, innovative. Except and that. The one uh, exception. Open fermentation, good. Uh, mixed cultures, great. Uh, and play with your beer and not your recipes. I think those are our takeaways. Yep. All right. I'd say that. There we go. Then, uh, hey, everybody, this has been me sitting here in beautiful and lovely downtown Tarpon Springs, Florida, in the uh, soon-to-be uh, Saint Somewhere Brewing Museum. Uh, while I, I do want to point out, you see the uh, little marks on the walls? Yep. Those are raccoon paw prints. Oh, awesome. <laughs> yes, so uh, the museum has already had visitors. <clears throat> yes. But uh, if you do get a chance, uh, like I said, Bob's beer is uh, distributed by the Shelton Brothers, mm-hmm. like pretty much everywhere, right? In most states. Yeah, although it, when we opened the new brewery, we had about a four to five month lag phase where we didn't brew anything, so our our uh, distribution is is nil right now. We need to get them some more beer. There you go. Ask for it. Demand it. Yeah, there you go. Demand that you get your hands on Saint Somewhere and enjoy a wonderful taste of Tarpon Springs, Florida. Perfect. <laughs> Whoa, now that's an interesting guy. Yeah, I mean, when you stop and you think about the fact that, like, yeah, okay, the man's made a skateboard pump, he's used his mash tun as a hot tub, and that he pre-treated the roof to his new brewery with old wort so that he would actually have the same microbes in there. That's very much the definition of an interesting guy. <laughs> yeah, I would say so, man. What a what? A, well, I was going to say what a wacko, but maybe I'll say what a wonderful wacko. Yeah, and because his beer is distributed through the Shelton Brothers, I think he's pretty much available everywhere. So if you get a chance, absolutely go and check out some of the Saint Somewhere beers. They are incredibly, wonderfully weird and rustic and fun. Cool. I will definitely keep my eyes open for them. I think it's time for us to answer some questions. Yeah, we're going to take a quick break here. uh, And when we come back, we'll be answering some more questions. We'll be talking about something other than beer. And we'll have a quick tip for you. So stick around. 
Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit mechagrade.com. start off this final segment by answering some questions and hopefully giving you some useful information. So, uh, you want to take the first one, Drew? Oh, sure. But I'm still trying to figure out how we're going to get to the useful information part. <laughs> yeah, right. All right. So the first question that we have actually comes from Ryan Kelly, who contacted us via Facebook. And Ryan actually, uh, was asking a question about, well, oddly enough, a Tampa based brewery. Says here, hey guys, I tried a Kiwi Saison called Fuzz while down in Tampa at a brewery called Seven Sun. Uh, Seven Sun is in, I think, Dunedin, and they're about to open up a location in Seminole Heights. Awesome brewery. It was so amazing that it inspired me to brew my first Saison ever. I'd like to give the Kiwi Saison a shot. So I thought I'd reach out to see if you had any recommendations on creating an all-grain Saison recipe from scratch. I want something crisp and refreshing with a bit of the tart and sweet flavor coming from the fresh Kiwi, maybe. Ryan. So, so uh, what do you know about creating a Saison recipe? Not a damn thing. Uh, so I actually responded <laughs> to Ryan, and I will say for something like this where you have fruit and you want the fruit to be the star of the show, I would look at something very similar to my springtime uh, Saison, my Saison Printemps, uh, which is largely a wheat beer uh, Saison. So usually I think I run that one at about 50% wheat, 50% pills or thereabouts. Very light hopping with something nice and herbal. So probably like a, a steering Golings or a Zotz or even a Magnum if you want to be completely neutral. And then treat the, you know, ferment that out with your favorite Saison strain. If you're really wanting it to just pop the fruit, uh, 3711, or if you can get it, the White Labs Saison 3, I think is fantastic for this sort of use. And then for the fruit itself, uh, peel it because I don't like the flavor impact of a kiwi peel. No, thank you. There's some weird people out there who actually eat the kiwi with the whole peel. I don't understand those people. <laughs> it, like it's it the fuzzy. It, they like the fuzzy. Well, I know, but all it does is it actually it actually gives me a shiver down my spine to think of that sensation. So, regardless, take your kiwis. I would uh, scoop out the flesh or peel them somehow, slice them up, throw them in the freezer, and let them freeze, and then thaw them. Now, we always like to say, oh, you know, you do that because... It, People always like to say that you do that so you can get sanitation impact. In reality, yeah, you're going to kill off some of your bugs and bacteria, but you're not actually sanitizing your fruit by freezing because most things will survive that. What you're really doing is you're causing ice crystals to form because home freezers are very slow and inefficient. And when you have a slow, inefficient freeze, you get larger ice crystals that form. And those larger ice crystals pierce more of the fruit flesh. And so when you actually thaw them, more of the fruit goo comes racing out of the fruit flesh which is what we want in this case. So I would That's right. I would add that into a secondary uh, or actually just really even into the primary so you have more space because you're going to get some fermentation happening again. 
get that into a keg, drink it fresh. Yeah, right. That's the the rule for when you add stuff like that to a beer. Drink it fresh because that kiwi is going to start fading, and if you really want the uh, the best of it, drink it soon. There you go. So, Drew gave me this one because he couldn't pronounce the name at all, and so I'm just going to butcher it and apologize right now. It comes from Yap Brokhuizen from uh, Enumatil, Netherlands, and I, you know, I I would really ap- apologize for what I just did. Uh, oh, don't worry. If you want to like? Don't worry. He he yeah. said that his name would be unpronounceable to us, so I told him I was going to give it to you to pronounce. <laughs> well, and it worked. You always give me these, man. Okay. So, Yap writes in, what's your favorite Kolsch yeast? Also, is it to style to use oat flakes in a Kolsch? Well, I don't, I don't make a lot of Kolsches, but despite that, I have uh, very specific ideas about what a Kolsch should be. Uh, number one, to me, it's not a Kolsch unless you're using Y yeast 2565 or a yeast that tastes like it. A lot of people are really into extremely clean yeasts for Kolsch. Uh, not me. I want to get some of those, uh, whiny, fruity, uh, esters into the, uh, into the Kolsch. That's just what I expect when I buy a commercial Kolsch from a, a German brewery. That's the kind of flavor that I usually get from it. So that's what my favorite yeast is. Is it to style to use oat flakes in a Kolsch? Probably not, but it's probably not a bad idea either. So, you know, it depends on how much you want to put in there and what the purpose of the beer is. If you were going to make a Kolsch that was 50% flaked oats and enter it into a competition, you might have an issue but if you're going to drink it yourself, you may decide it's one of the best beers you've ever had. So there, did I waffle on that one enough? Yeah. Well, my response was, if you ask a German, no. And if you ask if okay. that's something that's going to appeal to your taste buds, go for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, if, if the question is, is it to style? The answer has to be, no, it's not. But if the question is, can I put them in there and make a good cold? The answer is damn straight you can you can put them in there and you can make a good kolsch influenced beer right exactly excuse me and i guess technically you can't even make a kolsch unless you're in Cologne. exactly so dude you're kind of just screwed so enjoy the oats (laughs) yeah well at least he's in the netherlands so he's close you know he could bop over to germany and uh, and brew it there and then it would be a true kolsch if you're not doing that and uh, you don't care, then put the oats in. I think it's probably not a bad idea. All right. Well, there we go. All right. And, and our next question uh, comes from Evil Draft on our forum. It says, I love it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, first time poster here. I am currently a U.S. expat living in Korea. Of the podcast. Just discovered it a couple months ago. Bought both books and had them shipped over here and enjoying the first one. We love you, Evil thank Draft. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Anyway, I just got a job in the States and will be returning in a couple months. Of course, this means that I need to use as much of my on-hand ingredients as possible as I don't want to waste them or the money I already spent. So I'm wondering how much hops is too much. I'm planning on making a saison because I figure pretty much anything goes with that style. Of course, I know this isn't entirely true. 
Well, yeah. How about guacamole saison, uh, clam chowder saison, C- anything C- saison goes. Saison I'm yeah, I got right. them all. All right. Going to make a five-gallon batch with four kilograms of Pilsner, uh, a half a kilogram of wheat malt, and a half a kilogram of Caramunic too. Might add some chocolate rye, too, if I feel the urge, but this would be a very small amount and will be a game-time decision. Uh, the hops in my freezer are as follows. Six and a half ounces of Target at 10 alpha acid. Uh, two ounces of Steering Golding. One ounce of EKG, one ounce of Halitower. The questions, can I use it all? And if so, or even if not so, how would you all hop this beer using the maximum amount of hops without making it unpleasant? I'm fully expecting a very hoppy Saison, an IPS, and that sounds great to me. Just need a little direction. Last beer in Korea, and I want to enjoy it. Thanks. All right, so my take on that is three of your three of your hops in there, you could totally use the entire quantities. The Steering Golings, the EKG, and the Halitar. EKG is going to be the least traditional of those in a style like that, but whatever. Target, I use all the time as a neutral uh, bittering hop. The problem is, I don't think there's any way in hell you can use six and a half ounces at 10 alpha acid in a five-gallon batch. <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend that at all. Yeah, so if this were me and I was thinking about it, I would probably look at what your original gravity is going to be. And aim your IBUs for about a one-to-one ratio on that. That's what I find works best, I think, for my taste, for a hoppy saison. Which and you know, if you don't have brewing software to uh, help you figure that out, there are a number of online calculators you can go use um, that will help you achieve that ratio. But yeah, I I don't think you would want like an eighty-five IBU, ten fifty gravity beer. No, well, and six and a half ounces of target would push that way above that so oh uh, yeah yeah what i would actually suggest as a as a profile is figure out how many how many ibus you actually want based on your gravity and i would probably stick the steering goldings and hollow tower in at the finish as your finishing hops because i like the aroma of those and i think those go very classically well with saison i would probably if you're really dead set on using the ekg i would probably throw that in as like a 20 minute edition see where your IBUs are, and then use however much target at 60 minutes it is that you need in order to get to your IBU level. And that would be my take. Yep. I, I think that that's probably the the best way to approach it. Um, you know, and uh, I realize that uh, you want to use all those hops, but you don't want to make an undrinkable beer either. Yeah, that would, uh, 6.5 ounces of target, <laughs> and just about anything would be... Pretty sturdy. Yeah, right. 10% target, six and a half. No, don't go there, please. Okay, our final question today comes in uh, via email from Edward Messer, who says, Hi, guys. I appreciate the thoughtfulness with which you answer these questions. Oh, man. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Uh, And don't simply trot out the old brewing platitudes. Well, yeah, we don't do that, do we? My question has to do with boil vigor. I've read opinions advocating for a full rolling boil. I've read opinions advocating for boiling just above a simmer. I've read mention of driving off DMS, hop utilization, melanoidin production, better hop break, thermal loading, evaporation rates, commercial breweries do it, kettle kettle geometry ad infinitum. Can you give us your understanding of the boil addressing these items and others? And as a follow-up to your answer to the above, is there a way for homebrewers to know that they are boiling with appropriate vigor, and do different styles require different vigor? 
Thanks for your thoughtful, reasoned, educated, witty response. Man, he is like putting the pressure on us, isn't he? I don't know. I, uh, I feel no pressure. You're the one answering this question. <laughs> yeah, but I'm going to throw it to you in a minute. Mm. So, Edward, I hate to I hate to equivocate once again, but the answer is pretty much it depends. Most of the time, I will do a full rolling boil um, and try to achieve. Well, whether I try to achieve it or not, I end up with about a 20% boil off, which is pretty high compared to what a lot of literature states. Uh, I don't seem to have you know, a problem doing that. Uh, I think that uh, I started doing it originally because I would uh, sparge more in order to get my efficiency up, right? The more you sparge, the more of those sugars you can draw out and the higher your efficiency will be. But I finally came to realize that uh, that's just a number and uh, it's not really necessary to uh, to achieve that high efficiency every time. So I've started sparging a bit less and trained down my boil vigor just a bit. Uh, I make five and a half gallon batches and I used to start with eight, even sometimes eight and a quarter, eight and a half gallons of wort and boil until it was down to five and a half. And, uh, I don't do that anymore, partially because I figured out that it wasn't really necessary and partially because it lengthens my brew day and I'm lazy and I don't want to do that. So I now collect, I try to collect between six and a half and seven gallons for my five and a half gallon batches and crank down my boil just a little bit. Now there are uh, breweries and people who do even less than that. Uh, the people who are into low oxygen brewing and the Pilsner Urquell Brewery, for instance, both note that uh, they brew barely above a simmer. Uh, so it really depends on what your goals are. And I would also say it depends on what your assessment of your beer right now is. If you are doing a very vigorous boil or a very low boil, and you don't perceive any problems, then there's no reason to change anything in your procedure. Um, a more vigorous boil will drive off DMS better, but that doesn't mean that a lesser boil won't. Uh, hop utilization, you just need to keep them moving around in there. Uh, melanoidin production, I think, is going to be more a function of uh, what goes into your recipe than anything else. Uh, I haven't noticed any change in hot break by uh, boiling less vigorously. Thermal loading, I don't even know what that means. Uh, evaporation rates uh, don't matter as much if you collect the right amount of wort to start with. Commercial breweries do it. We've addressed that. Uh, kettle geometry, you know, if your kettle is has more of a closed top on it, then you might want to boil a little bit more vigorously, but... I don't think that's going to make a huge difference. So there, I, I have equivocated all over the place. So now it's your turn. Well, I mean, I think the, the main one that I do, um, I just look for a, not a vigorous boil, right? I mean, I know some people out there are like, you know, more heat and they gun it so that their kettle is roiling like the surface of the, you know, the sun. I'm not looking for that. I want a good, movement on the top of the surface, you know, in terms of at least 
you know, liquid moving. I don't necessarily need even a lot of vigorous breaking of the surface. Uh, and really, that part of that's driven by the fact that my brew kettle is a 26-gallon pot, and I'm usually brewing a 11-gallon batch, which means that I get a... If I put a lot of heat on the kettle, I will get a lot of evaporation, and I don't want to have a lot of evaporation. So I tend to actually go for a softer boil. Now, one of the things that we do have in line for a test, as soon as we can figure out how the heck to do it, is a boil vigor experiment, because to Denny's point and to some of the stuff that we were talking about earlier about, you know, sort of low oxygen methods and different ideas for, okay, how do you control damage to particular malt flavors and whatnot, there is a line of thought that there is a, uh, a creature called wort shear. And this is something that's very important to a lot of German brewers that you don't want to boil too vigorously because you can damage the malt character that you're going to get out the other side. And so what we really like to do is actually set up an experiment where we can have people do that sort of, uh, that test, same recipe, different boil vigors and see what we get. But we're trying to really suss out how to make sure that we have the controls on that tight. So that's the reason why we haven't started that one yet. But, for me, I, I I don't brew normally styles where I think that's going to matter. So if I was a Pilsner brewer, if I was a Hellas brewer, then I would probably be really concerned about it. But my boil vigor is driven more from my equipment. Yeah, and I, I think that's a really good point. And I think that that goes back to it being specific. Uh, I would say that a, a slower boil, a lower boil would make more difference if you're making a Hellas than it would if you're making an Imperial IPA. Well, except for the complication then that, you know, a lot of people will say that if you're boiling slowly or more gently, you get less hop utilization. I don't know if I, I don't know how much less uh, off the top of my head, but there is that concern. Yeah. And I'm, I don't, I don't know if that's the case or not. Maybe this is a, a question to ask Glenn Tinseth one of these days. Uh, I, I get the feeling that as long as the hops are moving around, the utilization is going to be the same no matter what the vigor of the boil. But again, this is something we'd like to test as soon as we figure out how. I mean, it would be easy to test on an individual basis. I can make two batches. I can say this one was boiled less vigorously than the other one based on my uh, my visual observations. But being able to replicate that and them among a number of Igors has some uh, some issues to it, huh? Yep. There you go. All right, there we've uh, hopefully we've uh, given you some interesting info, uh, at least something to think about, so you can decide for yourself. And that means it is now time for our quick tip, which comes from our Igor Jason Monday. Yeah. So Jason uh, just recently got uh, got himself some new kegs and wanted to look about ways to, you know, well, get a shortened dip tube effect without actually cutting the dip tube. So what Jason says here says, I bought a used keg last year and found that dip tube had been shortened by an inch along with a half a teaspoon of gelatin. That keg was giving me clearer beer than I had experienced in all the years of kegging. I was able to reproduce the effect in my other kegs without cutting the end of the dip tubes. I put a slight bend in the dip tube so they don't reach the bottom. I put the bend into the tube by inserting the dip tube into the liquid post and pulling until I felt it just give slightly. I put in it in two more inches and pulled again, two more inches and pulled. There seems like there's a joke here. I did <laughs> I'm this not until going there, man. I'm not going there. Yeah. I did this until the tube would point at the wall of the keg instead of the center slash bottom. Now the beers pour clear quickly. They also don't dump a load of yeast in the glass when the keg blows. 
I like this technique because it's also reversible. Just bend it back to its original shape. So there you go. If you don't want to actually go and cut your tubes and end up with having maybe no long tubes or have to keep extra tubes on hand, uh, you can do this because, yeah, the dip tubes themselves are fairly flexible. Just be gentle about it. Don't go cranking on it until you collapse the tube. And you know what? There's another way to kind of do the same thing. Go ahead and cut the tube and use it short when you want to. But if you need it longer, you can just slip a little piece of vinyl tubing over that dip tube until it reaches the bottom of your keg. Dude, you can't mix the materials. <laughs> you want to bet I can't mix materials? Here, just watch. Uh, that one comes from my good buddy Brant Weaver, who uh, told that to me when I was complaining about having to shorten the dip tube on a keg to use with my Zymatic and say, oh, now I can't use it for beer anymore. He said, I shorten all of mine, and then I just put a piece of vinyl tubing over when I want them longer. It's like, well, okay, man, so it takes like 30 seconds and costs three cents. I guess that's the kind of solution I can get behind. Out of the, ma- uh, out of the mouths of Brant's come great wisdom. <laughs> yeah, that's right, man. Uh, and he likes your Cezanne guacamole, too. Yes, because he's a smart man. <laughs> that's right. So you got something other than beer for us, huh? So you actually think about other things? I do. In the in the two seconds I have free every day, I think of something different. So just recently I went home to visit my family, which is where the interview from Bob uh, that you just heard came from. And when I came home, I bought my mom an Amazon Echo for Christmas. And if you don't know, the Amazon Echo is kind of their speakery thing that listens to you and you can say, Alexa, play me music, you know, that sort of thing. And it will do so. And it's kind of cool and wonderful, but I never really thought about getting one because uh, I've got speakers and I've got my phones and I got Pandora and I got Spotify and all this other sort of stuff. What do I need this for? And I went home and was hanging out with my mom and watched her playing around with it and how she was using it and really kind of became obsessed with it and thought it was kind of cool. And well, I got home and I got my own Amazon Echo and I've been playing around with it, trying to figure out new things that I can do with it. So, you know, other than things like asking for the weather and asking it to play music and like, I always ask it every day before I leave, you know, Hey, uh, Alexa play relaxing music so that my dogs have relaxing music while I'm out of town or out of the house. And I use it to control some of my devices around the house now. So my sous vide cooker, I can tell it, Hey, Alexa, ask Jewel to set the temperature to 152. Uh, but also really, I'm going to admit the thing I think I enjoyed the most out of it. They have a daily Jeopardy game where they take unused questions from, uh, Jeopardy and ask you six questions per day. And I keep, I keep using it as my morning test to see how smart am I that day. And <laughs> I'd be scared to death to do that. And for those well, of you who don't know, Drew was actually on Jeopardy and was a winner. Yeah, I was a one-day champion on April 14th, 2008. And so if you get all the questions correct for the day, Alexa tells you, oh, you scored in the top 3% of players today. If you keep this up, you should consider trying out for the show. And I always have to look at her and go, I can't be back on the show. Thank you. Um, <laughs> it, it, does actually, it does actually bring back some of the Jeopardy memories without quite the PTSD that watching the show does for me. But I would actually say... The Amazon Echo and the related products are really cool, and I would love to see more things that people are doing with them. They have a whole skill set uh, idea, a way that you can develop effectively plugins 
for Alexa and have her do things and interact with other devices and other services. So if you have an Amazon Echo or Dot or Tap or whichever variety of this thing that you have, and you have skills that you'd like to use, let me know, because I'm still looking for more things to play around with the dang thing. I've played around with one a little bit. I have to admit they're extremely nerdy and cute and fun, but I have not uh, felt an overwhelming urge to, that I actually need one yet. Oh, I know. But that's me. I'm a nerd. What do you want? <laughs> yeah, well, so am I, but apparently a nerd of a different uh, color. There you go. Okay. All right. I think it's time to get out of here. It is time to get out of here. Thank you all for listening to the Experimental Brewing Podcast. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we are at EXP Brewing. We are on Facebook. Uh, I'm on a whole bunch of different beer forums, the AHA Forum, Northern Brewer, More Beer, uh, homebrew talk, Bruce Brothers, uh, homebrew stack exchange, and probably some other ones I'm forgetting. Drew hangs out on the Reddit homebrewing forum. If oh, you want to, and and now I also hang out yes. on the homebrew Slack forum. Homebrew Slack forum, huh? Okay, mm-hmm. there's a new one. And don't forget about our own forum at experimentalbrew.com. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. If you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.